Welcome to the One O'ahu Podcast. I'm Brandi Higa, and today is Thursday, May 18th, 2023. May 18th, we're in the middle of May, Mayor. We're back this week with Mayor Rick Blangiardi. Where have all the days gone? I don't know, but it feels like five minutes ago was May Day. <laughs> and now it's the 18th of the month, and you know, as we prepare for our Memorial Day celebrations and, and, and commemorations and everything else, I know it's going to just be a blink of an eye before I'm saying it's June 1st. It's just incredible. Well, I know a lot of people are excited for June 30. I want to start off with Rail. Yeah. You got to make that exciting announcement last week. I did. What does that mean for you to be able to finally say that? Well, you know, I'm the fourth mayor to touch the project, and we know that it started in 2005 and that it was delayed for six years with all of the discovery that had to go on about EV and other sorts of things of concern from an environmental standpoint. So it actually began construction in 2011, 12 years ago, and, and right almost from the outset, it was met with time delays and budget overruns and just a lot of um, confusion and animosity. And of course, it was that opposition that said it never should have been happening in the first place. And you know, just a major source of unrest, if you will, and, and not the least of which is when we came into office in the middle of a pandemic, just having gone through a very bizarre campaign, uh, if you will, because it was nothing but Zoom calls, having entertained so many small audiences for so many months, that was on everybody's hit list as a source of complaint. I mean, there wasn't one Zoom call that I ever did during the campaign that didn't want to talk about rail, and people really didn't have very much good to say about it. So that said, to come into office, to understand full well from the FTA standpoint that we had to regain some credibility because they were our construction partner from the beginning, but they had stopped giving the city any money since 2017. You know, all the things that we've gone through in the first couple of years to establish credibility with the FTA, to get them back at the table, funding us as a construction partner, to get into an area of feasibility, if you will, with the general public where they wouldn't have to feel that uh, raising taxes again or whatever it was going to take to subsidize this rail that seemed to be a big sinkhole uh, because it was already billions of dollars over budget. You know, at the end of the day, to put everybody in a calm, if you will, because we would we focused, we pivoted and simply said, okay, what can we do versus what we couldn't do? And to now bring it to this moment, we're about to begin the service. Half the, half, a little bit more than half the rail line, there's 10 miles and nine stations, and it gets us through Pearl Harbor, and we're on target, and hopefully when we be ahead of schedule, that in two years' time from now, we'll be at Middle Street, which would get us through two of the top three employment centers on our way to get to Holly Kawila and South Street by the end of the decade, hopefully. I, I mean, I feel really good about that because I think what we took was uh, something that was of major unrest in our community, understandably, justifiably, put it to a calm, put it into reality, and I think really, quite honestly, as I said, this is gonna be a very efficient run. It's, this is Kapolei to Aloha Stadium in 21 minutes with buses waiting for people, compared to all of the unknowns are riding on that road in the morning coming from there, knowing the density that's out there. I just feel like, you know, we, we're making something happen that most people didn't believe would happen. It's about to become a reality. And as I said all along, this is a transformative project. This will go on, um, this is going to go on for a long time because I do believe there'll be extensions, different phases to the rail, uh, because I believe it's going to be very popular with people. We're expecting a lot of people, those that use public transportation and those that don't, especially on that opening weekend, July 4th weekend. Right. What do you hope they take away? 
I hope that they'll take away just the essence of it, the reality. You know, the cars are big and they're beautiful and, they're in, in, in the ride itself, I've talked often about the view plane. It's going to be a surprise for people. Mm-hmm. I think hopefully what they'll take away is a sort of a joyous feeling about we've got something going here that's really going to be really good and that, um, you know, it's real. It's not talked about anymore. And uh, those people who will be able to take advantage of the, the first, you know, 10 miles uh, that we'll be able to see it. You know, we're, we're pretty modest in our projections. We think we'll get about 10,000 people a day. Uh, once we think we get to Middle Street, we think it'll be about 25,000 people a day. And ultimately, we can see the rail handling at a minimum 85,000 a day once we get to the full 18.25 miles, 18.75 miles to Halekawila. Uh That said, that's transformative. I, I don't want to speculate about cars off the road or whatever, but if we're talking about transporting as many as 85,000 people, or let's go even back to the short run, 10,000 mm-hmm. people a day. That's significant. And, um, and so it, it's, it's just one more or one more effort, if you will, to um, ease traffic congestion, but also ease the stress in people's lives. When it comes to town hall meetings, every district we've been to has been very different. Yeah. Your last town hall meeting took you out to Alawai Golf Course Clubhouse. What are some of your takeaways from that meeting? Yeah, you're absolutely right. Uh, they've all taken on a personality of their own. Um, you know, I was anticipating a much more hostile crowd uh, at the Alawai. I think I think we just thought for different reasons, whether it was about, you know, the Alawai flood mitigation or crime or even homelessness in Waikiki or some of the issues that we had read through the neighborhood board meetings prior and were anticipating. I thought the, the crowd came out, um, you know, and they were um, engaged. They had, they, had, they had concerns along those same lines. We would tell them things that we're doing, things that they could anticipate, whether it was homelessness or about the crime issues down there. Uh, and, you know, there was some concern about the golf course itself. But, uh, you know, there wasn't the pushback on the flood mitigation project that I thought there might be. There seems to be an acceptance. And maybe it's just because people are becoming greatly uh, a, a lot more aware right now. You can't watch a newscast, seems, anymore without hearing about some kind of really incredible weather pattern on the mainland. If you're watching national news, that is unprecedented. That's devastating. I mean, it's been all the way through this year with un, you know untold amounts of snow, and now you've got the melt and the flooding and the damage. You've got all kinds of other things happening. So I, I think we're just trying to be very uh, prudent here with respect to the flood mitigation project um, from the standpoint of understanding I need to do something because we have nothing like that in place and how much it will protect. So I, I thought all in uh, it was uh, was a good crowd. I think I, hopefully we answered their questions. I know a lot of people stayed around afterwards. It wasn't hostile. It was constructive. Uh, and I liked that. I liked the tone of the meeting. Homelessness did come up, though. You're yes, right. it did. And it's also an issue that had some of our listeners have asked about, uh, listeners of this podcast, a woman wrote in, she has three children. She wanted to let us know she's having trouble saving up for rent. Uh, another gentleman asked for us to pump in more funding and to reopen the portal to accept applications for the city's rent and utility relief fund. So although the pandemic over, it's pretty clear this need is not. It's definitely still there. Right. So what was your answer to those folks at Alawai and what's your answer to those that are sending us in questions about just what is being done for those. Well, look, the rent utility relief program, I think, still is going on, but it's finite and it has a limit, and I'm not exactly sure in this conversation um, when we will stop. I think it's still in place right now, and we've tried to do as aggressive a job as we can. 
look, look um, inflation is coming down somewhat. I watched the report yesterday on where we were, but we're still in a highly inflationary cycle. Um, the cost of living is up there. There was a, a big report I read earlier in the week about uh, a number of Alice families. You know, there's no question that Hawaii is an expensive place to live, and uh, our isolation just enhances that or exacerbates that. And um, at the end of the day, there's only so much we can possibly do, you know, uh, and we're trying to do everything we, we can. You know, with somebody who's coming up with rent money with, with three young children to feed, I know that that's not, that's not easy to do. Um, we've tried to do as much as we can. We're one of the better performing cities based on the finite amount of money we had from rent utility relief. I think we did a big job of mitigating a lot of evictions that people had projected would happen as a result of COVID. But at the end of the day, it's only so far you can go at helping people make ends meet based on the financial demands they have in their lives. I mean, I, I don't know what else I can say. We, 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 you know, certainly there's jobs available out there for people. Um, we're trying to do everything we can with childcare that would help, mm -hmm. help get women back in the workforce, something the city really hasn't done before, but it takes a while to get that going. I know that Sylvia Luke, uh, Lieutenant Governor Luke, is committed to at the state level. I think COVID taught us anything. It was the importance of having better child care, not only for the social equity for the child themselves, but this is also tied directly to trying to keep our women in the workplace. You know, we have many moms, many women uh, in prominent roles throughout the whole state. And when we lost them in the workforce, it really impacted everything. So I, I you know, my heart goes out to somebody who's struggling like that. I, I started to mention that the Alice report said that some 44% of our families now are living paycheck to paycheck, and 11% of those families, these are people now, ALICE is an acronym, it stands for Asset Limited Income Constrained Employed. So these are working people. But 11% of the people who are working are living in poverty, uh, below the poverty line, and the balance of living paycheck to paycheck. Boy, I tell you, I don't know of a government programming that program that can offset that, and, but we certainly don't look the other way on it. We're trying to do whatever we can to help. Tailing on that, your services for, like you said, to get moms back in the workforce. This past weekend, we were able to celebrate moms. Yeah. Uh, for you personally, can you tell us a little bit about your mother and, and what she means to you? Wow. Well, my mother was, uh, my, my mother's probably the reason why I'm here today. In fact, um, you know, my mother was the youngest of nine children. She was five foot one, 104 pounds to the day she died. I grew up in a bilingual household in a very different era. You know, I was born in 1946. I grew up in the 50s. It was very much of a, you know, everybody came from the old country. Italy was very that way. My mother had an eighth grade education, but she was determined that me and my brother, we only had me and my brother, we're gonna go to college someday, which is not anything anybody talked about at the time. Not only did I go to college and graduate school, but my brother became a Jesuit priest, has two PhDs, and, and he's a canon lawyer, and he was, he retired now, and he's a chaplain at the VA hospital in San Diego, but clearly my mother's ticket to heaven. But it was my mother who was a driving influence throughout my whole life, and in fact, the reason why I came to Hawaii in 1965, I was all set to go to Boston College. I had been a, spent a year in a prep school after high school, um, for the Naval Academy, I'd been recruited by them, but I, would, I, I knew I wasn't gonna go there. Uh, shortly after I got there, <laughs> I realized I was more than academically flawed in those days because it was all civil engineering, and I still remember the first day I opened my calculus book, and 
I looked at it, and the only thing I recognized was the page number, and I thought, I'm in, I'm in deep trouble here. But anyway, I, uh, my, my father had a chance to come and work at Pearl Harbor because they had closed down where he was working. Uh, he was a machinist, and, and my mother really wanted to come here, but not without me, the oldest son, and that changed my destiny. So I could just share one other little thing. that I made the decision to run for mayor on my, what would have been my mother's 100th birthday, December 27th, 2019. She was born on December 27, 1919, obviously. And um, I did that in the spirit of what she represented in my life at the time. I'm 73 years old. I actually outlived my mom. My mom died young at 70. Um, and, and thought if she were alive today, and I told her I'm thinking about doing this, what she would say. And my mother was a dreamer. You know, she was like, you can do whatever you think you want to do, just, you know. And so I. And that spirit of her and how I got to be in Hawaii is when I made my decision. And uh, so I did a lot of reflection this past weekend on Mother's Day because I feel pretty good about this job that I'm in right now and the challenge of it and the good that we can do and the team we've brought to play and the impact we're beginning to have. It's a very exciting period of my life. What did your mom do for work? My mother was a hairdresser. Um, which uh, she took on later in life because in the beginning, I think she was not only scrambling to raise me and my brother, but I grew up in a tenement house with uh, all my aunts and, and my grandmother was a great matriarch. She kept her seven or six daughters together. One of them passed. And so I grew up with all my cousins in one big house. And um, my mother being the youngest uh, ended up being sort of Cinderella to her older sisters. And so they had jobs, and my mother was doing a lot to take care of my grandmother and all these things that had just gotten passed on to her. So later in life, she went on to um, go to hairdressing school, and she seemed to like it. Do you think that's had any influence on the way that you lead this city? Yeah, I think our parents shape all of us, right? I think um, in the older you get, Sometimes the more of yourself you see in your parents, and sometimes now that I have three kids, <laughs> I can see some of myself in them as well. Um, but yeah, I, I yeah I look. I grew up in that era. I mean, people were people were uh, you know first generation, you know immigrant really immigrant society wanting to make a better place in America, willing to work hard and sacrifice. Um, you know, knowing full well there was sort of an underdog mentality of you, you got to earn everything you get. Nobody's going to give you anything. And that kind of that kind of fight and that kind of drive has lasted my whole lifetime. It's helped me achieve in life the things I've, I've tried to do and, and get done. I want to get to something that we're getting done right now. Last week on the podcast, we had Dr. Jim Ireland on. Yeah. And he talked about a new 25-bed facility in Evile mm -hmm. that could help get people back on their feet so it's not just that immediate wound care and stabilization but something to kind of keep them stabilized someone yeah. to take them for 30 to 60 days how much will having that physical space help? that that's going to help a lot i think we we need more of that and uh evil a was an underutilized facility we had a lot of logistics to get through because of the monies that were used it has to, i don't want to get off in any esoteric realm here right now but that's a complicated scenario and the monies that were used for construction and then quite honestly, how we could utilize it. But I think we've gotten over that hurdle. They turned the water on last weekend. We're gonna to begin to do that. But it's one of the things that I'm right now really engaged with Governor Green. We're gonna meet later this week 
Um, I think the city has facilities that we can convert, but we need the help. We need the we need the resource help. We need the wraparound services. You know, we're doing another project with CORE, with Dr. Jim Island, with Japson, and as soon as we open our clinic on Pauai Street, there'll be another eight beds. But we could use somewhere between one and 200 beds to deal with the homeless population, which the numbers just came out last week. Our homeless population is up slightly, but 4% of that is, the in plus four is sheltered. It was only up a fraction of a decimal point. Not surprising because of COVID, not surprising in a way, uh, because this is the never ending battle, right? You get somebody out of homelessness and somebody else goes in, and that's sort of what's happened. So it's remained relatively flat on Oahu. I still think it's a scalable problem. But we need those kind of facilities because the people we're dealing with, for the most part, the really tough cases require some kind of psychiatric or medical help beyond just wounds, cleaning of wounds, you know? Um, more than 50% of the people that we deal with on Oahu have been on the streets for 10 years or more, and a much higher percentage of those people who've been on the streets for 10 years or more are people suffering from some form of mental illness or addiction. Um, and that makes it very difficult. And so you just can't put them in some place where they're gonna run out of it as fast as they can get. You gotta be able to provide the treatments to stabilize. And, and so uh, the, we don't have a city department of health. The state has a department of health. They have resources. We're committed to that. And I think that's gonna be our next major breakthrough. I'm very proud of all the work that Jim Island has done, Dr. Island, with CORE. We've got a lot more capacity there as we continue to grow and develop that program in our outreach and really taking a really a lot of pressure off of our police department and our EMS services because of the vehicles we have mm -hmm. and, and how we're conducting it. But at the end of the day, the solution with the agenda we have, which is to give these people their dignity, is to be able to take them someplace and provide treatment, and that's gonna be the next major breakthrough. While we were there in Waikiki last week, a woman asked you for an update on the surf wrecks. Mm. Um, I know you were able to meet with them. Can you tell us how that meeting went? And yeah, if, there was, is, if there is an update. You know, it was a great meeting. We went down in the pouring rain on a Friday afternoon, um, and uh, and there they were in mass. They're passionate people about their surfboards, and I know how much and how important it's been to them. And now it's been out out of service for quite a while, because this is not a the tourist thing. This is a lot of local mm -hmm. people who keep their boards in Waikiki yep. because they don't have big enough cars or just the transportation of a board, but they come, they go, they surf in the morning. Sometimes they go to work all day, surf in the evening, and it's been ongoing. And we used to have 600, almost 600 boards next to Moana Surfrider Hotel, which unfortunately not once but twice uh, those racks were burned. So we looked at a couple of options. Um, I'll be honest with you, I looked back at where we originally built, and even though it's adjacent to the hotel, uh, I, I want to go back to the management of Kioya and, and discuss the possibility of putting those racks back where they were initially, but constructing a facility that would not only um, would, would be safer with respect to the installation of sprinkler systems and other things that would protect that building, because admittedly, the hotel itself incurred millions of dollars of damage, and they had a $500,000 $500, deductible, so besides their insurance claim, they also had to, you know, pay the result of two occurrences a million dollars, which, you know, that was a lot to ask from the hotel over that that kind of vandalism. So, um, I want to have that conversation, see if we can. I, look, I think it's not so much even about blocking the viewpoint. I, I think that people, when they come to Waikiki, especially even our visitors, 
um, you know, seeing a surfboard at the beach is okay. You know, and the surf racks are vertical. They're not horizontal. And, and they're actually, from an aesthetic standpoint, they're not that bad to look at because the boards have great designs and whatever. But we're talking about hundreds of boards, whether it's a 300 or possibly even going back to what we did before, 600. It's a lot of surfboards. But it's also a lot of people who would really like to have that happen. So we're going to see if we can't make it happen. It seems like there are a lot of asks of you when you go to these <laughs> meetings like that one. But yeah. I want to follow up on one, um, the Kohuku swimming pool. Yeah. Where are we there? Is that ball rolling? Yeah, it is rolling. Thanks for asking. Actually, we had a really good meeting in here. Uh, and the AEA, AES representative came in, and she was pretty encouraging. And we were kind of given misinformation that they had pulled back on their deal. But they're certainly willing to keep their $2.5 million offer on the table, as well as a million and a half matching fund to take us up to uh, $4 million. And I think that they would even take a look at, you know, in kind, if you will, if the city was to provide some land to, so I feel like we've got a $4 million starting point. I think we had some discussions about what it would take to build that community center, which is also a gym plus a competitive um, swimming pool. You know, so it'd have to be at least a 20 by 40 pool, I guess. I don't know the exact regs, but it's, it's a, you know, it's a competitive pool. And, um, I think it's probably about 25 million on a rough off the off off the off the back of a napkin, if you will, or the back of an envelope. Uh, and so we'd have to figure out how we're going to raise the rest of that money. I'm going to meet with them again. I'm going to ask them for more money than four million. Mm -hmm. I think we might have a compelling argument. I think the city can come up with some money too, and from our clean water fund. And I'm going to put some back in the private community. But I think, given the importance of that, and to serve the people who live out there. In fact, that really, quite honestly, that side of the island, and the fact that we're talking about one or two different land parcels that are adjacent to Kahuku High School. So it really does make a lot of sense, not only for the high school, but as a complex in and of itself. Love to see if we can't make that happen. Last week, you joined the governor and other state, city, and community leaders to sign a unified statement on Red Hill. Yes. What did that statement, what did that letter call for? Well, you know, there's the short term, if you will, of uh, what we're dealing with right now, which is the safe defueling of the hill tanks at Red Hill. And to that end, you know, the military has um, been actively involved at the highest level, and even myself, I've been afforded briefings all the way up from Secretary John Del Toro of the Navy to Admiral Aguilino, the head of Indopaycom, to Admiral Wade, who's now the three-star admiral who's in charge of the defueling. Mm -hmm. That's one aspect of it. I think that last week's One Voice has a lot to do more with the, um, the uh, ongoing concern for our aquifers because we're going to assume this task is going to get done. I know in the minds of some people, not soon enough, but it's going to get done. It's going to get done safely. But defueling the tanks is only one thing. It's more about the ongoing making sure the preservation of our aquifers are going to remain intact. And I think that's what this One Voice is more about. It's a long-term commitment to the future to make sure, yeah, we didn't get by this hurdle, but what else is going to happen? Because as you well know, as a result of the spills and what's been reported, there's a lot of those fuel, a lot of that fuel is still unaccounted for. And in this day and age of also having PFAS mm -hmm. in, in, out of concern, these you know forever chemicals uh, that have gotten into our, our, our wells, if you will, and the ramifications of that, what are we going to do to make sure that, there's, that we all understand, especially here in the middle of the ocean, our options for water are what they are. You know, we're not, you know, we can't, in California, tie into the Colorado River for drinking water here. 
So um, that's what this is about, to make sure that um, for generations to come that we have safe drinking water and, and making sure that in the short term, while we more than have the military's attention, that we work collaboratively, doesn't have to be adversarial. They've got a lot of resource, a lot of money's been committed to it. The Navy said they want to put up a billion dollars. We're talking about drilling of additional wells. We're talking about other things that we're going to do in our discovery of missing chem. All that stuff. That's what this is about. We're about to enter hurricane season mm. here in the Central Pacific. When it comes to you, your leadership standpoint, what's being done in terms of prep? Well, you know, we, we actually just a week ago, uh, a little bit more, a week and a half ago now, we had a we had an all-out meeting with the, the governor and all of our civil defense people and the other mayors came from the other three counties and we were all in attendance. Uh, we had the meeting in, in Waikiki uh, and General Haro was there uh, to take us through, you know, what the plan is in the event that something happens. Um, so, you know, Hurricane seasons is treacherous out here, especially in today's world. And we've seen it over the last several years, although last year was seemingly relatively calm. But we've had a lot of tropical storms out in the Pacific. It's been a very volatile place. In fact, going back into my former life at Hawaii News Now, boy, we went to, I think, two of the last years I was there. Every year we had unprecedented number of storms, many of which we were really concerned might turn towards Hawaii. Um, and, and we were fortunate that that didn't happen. So our dilemma right now is how do we prepare for a major disaster without sounding like we're crying wolf mm-hmm. uh, because there's been so many near misses or things that were going to be and then people don't. So this is about education. It's about awareness. It's about making sure that we stay ready should something happen. You know, my first year in office, about a year and a half ago, we had that flooding and we tried to get out there and... Um, and we couldn't, we couldn't even get there. We got cut off at Haleiwa, and um, you know, so we saw her. And that, and that wasn't really a hurricane. That was a flooding situation. It was heavy rain. We didn't have the wind experience. So, look, I think having lived here for a lot of my life, and all of us know this, we are vulnerable against these extreme weather situations. And so what we're trying to do is prepare the best we possibly can against what we hope will never happen, but knowing full well there's a strong likelihood it could. Earlier this week, you took part in a series of events to honor our law enforcement. Mm. What's your message to folks this week as we recognize Police Week? Well, our message is that our first priority above all, with all the tasks that we have to do here at the city, is provide public safety. And I look at our police department as a tip of the spear on that uh, from the standpoint of making people feel safe. Look, there's a lot of definitions of public safety. Certainly when we came into office with covid took on its own form of public safety with respect to all the preventative uh, applications we did with respect to vaccinations, mask wearing, social distancing, all of that stuff to create safe spaces for people. But when it comes to people living in their homes or going out or anything else that, you know, just the way of life, we want people to feel like they're safe at all times. Been well stated that we're understaffed with our police department. We have some 1,800 officers. We're probably short about 400. It's not the easiest time to recruit uh, police officers. The world has changed. The view of policing has changed. The challenge of the job has changed. One of the things that we did last weekend when we were honoring our police officers was, you know, recognize and honor the fallen and the fact that people really do die in these jobs. And we had just a couple, a couple of years ago. Uh, so at the end of the day, and, and of course, it's even more pronounced when you watch national news, right? So it's a dangerous job. 
And, and so uh, out of respect for that and the degree of difficulty, we're doing everything we can to attract uh, people to join our police department. And while we do and we are being successful, people are coming in, but people are also retiring as well. And it's hard to get, it's hard to get a, ahead of that. So um, we're, I made it really clear I'm going to be, because public safety is a top priority, being very supportive of our police department in every way we possibly can. But I will tell you this, it's no small challenge right now. After making it yet again to the national championship match, you had a ceremony last week to honor this year's UH men's volleyball team. Yeah. What was your message to those guys? Well, you know, it was joyous. I mean, first of all, you know, it was in my short two years and four months in office, the third time we get to do that. Yeah. And the fourth year in a row they've played for the national title. I mean, for all that gets talked about in sports, I mean, this is the stuff of dynasty, legacy. I mean, it's incredible. And even even in their losing to UCLA, the very fact that they, they fought all the way to even get there and, 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 and nothing was easy for this team. So our message was one of appreciation because in this midst of all that we're going through right now, their success brought such an incredible sense of pride to this whole state, not just in here in Honolulu. And, 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 and that kind of pride uh, is really healthy right now for our community. So my message was one of gratitude, appreciation, acknowledgement, congratulations, great coaching. I emphasize that while we're there because, you know, as good as those athletes are, and they're really talented athletes, and they even had, you know, Della became the national player of the year. I mean, that, that level of performance, um, you know, you just – you have to stand in, in, in awe of that, the fact that, um, you know, they're able to, to play at that level against incredible superpowers in the world of men's volleyball and play at the highest level on a sustained basis. It's not like one, sometimes you look back at schools and they had that one freak year where all of a sudden, you know, they, they got there and everybody said, how did that ever happen? These guys are doing it and have been doing it for a long time. Yeah, I mean, you were a coach. You're right. Yeah. It's not just about guys getting hot at the right time. It's kind of this dynasty that we're living through of Coach Charlie Wade. <laughs> yeah. So what do you think is making him so successful? You you coached at the university. Yeah, well, I did. That was I coached a long time ago. Well, I think, well, first of all, I'm going to give Charlie full due and say he's a hell of a, he's a hell of a volleyball coach. I think, you know, like, I think that people want to play for winners. And, it, you know, so the school has developed a really good reputation. They've been very good in their recruiting, which at the end of the day is really a key. They obviously, beyond whatever adjustments they make in preparation or whatever for a volleyball match, they're, they're picking up some really good players. So they know how to recruit. And they know, you know, they know what they're looking for, what they're looking for. Because, you know, in each of these last three, well, four years of time, they've lost a group of seniors every year. And you think, okay, wow, they were so great, but boom, you know, they come right back. So... So I, I, I think that, you know, uh, people want to play for winners, a winning coach. He's establishing his own reputation, you know, because of the continuity. And I think that Hawaii has a great appeal. And, mm -hmm. you know, for all the good things people think about Hawaii, too, volleyball is right up there, is where, you know, because the Wahine helped with that, too. Right. I mean, they helped tremendously with that. So the men's and women's volleyball program at the University of Hawaii, I think, among volleyball players, uh, both nationally and internationally, as we've seen, is well documented and i think you know so hard to hard for us to think of ourselves like as a kentucky in basketball at least the way they used to be thought of or ucla and the you know in in basketball or alabama in football these schools that just seem to rank up there every year but i think in volleyball 
we're getting into that kind of reputation and that kind of niche. It's, pre- it's pretty incredible. Right. I want to ask you about another young man who's generating a lot of pride for here in the state of Hawaii. Iam Tongi celebrated yeah. this week, making the top three on American Idol with so much potential heading into the season finale as well. Right. Uh, your reaction? Well, it's phenomenal. I mean, um, because I, I do think he's going to win the whole thing. We'll see. I'm not going to botch you anything. But, you know, if you listen to the people we've talked to from um, ABC behind the scenes, I mean, he's very, very strong in the balloting. And, and, um, and then he seems to have an added dimension, not just in his vocal qualities, but the audience in watching him perform seems to really respond to him. And I think they're seeing that nationally as well. I think he's... He's unique in that regard, but his voice is incredible. And um, all I can say is that if, if this comes to fruition and he wins the whole thing, there'll be a lot more celebrating. And it also, again, would be really good for our community. It's unfortunate that he and his family have moved to California, but I can tell Seattle, you. Washington. Seattle, rather. That's right, Seattle. Forgive me. But, but I can just tell you that people, I think, are really excited. And, and I would tell you, in our dealings with the people of Kahuku, they say he's, he's one of us, you know? So does that burden fall on you if he does win? Will you have to plan a parade? You know, you know I, I, I want to do parade. something in the in town for him. I think I think if anything, we could do a concert with it. If we, I, I don't know what his schedule is going to be like and what he would be willing to do, but uh, since he seems to, even though they've moved to Seattle now, feel like this is home, uh, that hopefully, if he gets by this. We'll try to do something because I just think, look, we've had some really incredible things. We just talked about volleyball. I'm still on a high for my kids from last summer in the Little League. I mean, <laughs> and winning the World Championship, yeah. it was so inspirational, right? We get a, another person of, of distinguishing themselves on a national platform like this. I mean, you know, I mean, short of Barack Obama becoming president, it's pretty cool stuff. <laughs> you know, we ought to celebrate it. You know, it's good. Well said, Mayor. And this is the One Oahu podcast. So for one final thought. Boy, I, I would tell you, um, these are challenging times for all of us. We all know that. And I can promise you that none of us at City Hall are looking the other way on the challenges we face. So I just thank everybody for um, their understanding and their patience. I think I feel really comfortable and confident about our team and our plans. I think things are going to begin to manifest themselves. They already are. Uh, I'm very proud of our group. I'm very confident in their abilities. It's taken us a while to get on track. I can feel the traction now. I can feel the direction. I feel like we've got momentum. So I just want to tell everybody, hang in there with us. Keep working hard. We keep working towards a better tomorrow. We're going to get there. Mayor, thank you. You're welcome. And it is another Town Hall Thursday. Tonight's meeting is scheduled for 6 p.m. at Kalakaua Middle School to hear directly from residents in Kalihi, Paulama, Chinatown, Downtown, and Kaka'ako. The next week, Thursday, May 25th, will mark our final town hall meeting, at least for this go around. That meeting scheduled for 6 p.m. at Pearl Harbor Elementary, that's for residents near the airport, Salt Lake, Pearl City, Waimalu, and Aiea. And don't forget, if you have a question for the mayor or any of the departments here in the city and county of Honolulu, you can submit your questions by heading to oneoahu.org slash podcast. Mahalo for listening, and until next time, aloha.